I'm your host, 123JackieB, and stay tuned for an interview with Scott Turner Schofield. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Welcome to the Popcorn Talk. Hello, 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 everyone. I am Jackie B, and I am here with Scott Turner Schofield, who so graciously decided to join us. Um, He's most known for his role as Nick on The Bold and the Beautiful, and he's been interviewed here before um, by my good friend James Lott Jr., But today he's being interviewed in relation to all of his theater work, and he's done three one-man shows. That's correct. Three, right? Three, yep. Which is amazing. I mean, I can't even believe the amount of work that must have gone into that. So um, our, our, I'm sorry, our site can be found at um, Broadway Be Down on Twitter, and you want to give them a twi- your Twitter handle? Sure, I am Turner Schofield. That's S C H O F I E L D at Turner Schofield across all of the media, all of the social thingies. <laughs> and I'm retweeting it right now. Thanks. There we go. So, how did you first become interested in theater? It seems like you, from reading your bio, it seems like you've done theater for like since you were young. So yeah, I've I, you know I was the kid who sort of blocked the television to perform for <laughs> my parents, you know, um, much to their chagrin. <laughs> but uh, I started doing theater seriously in high school, and um, that was a really powerful moment for me because you know I was one of those sort of at-risk youth in uh, in that way of that, you know, I was uh, at the time, we'll just say LGBT. I've been all of those things. I've right. been lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender <laughs> all at the same time. Um, and uh, so, you know, I was an LGBT youth and, you know, I didn't know the words. I didn't have, but I, I had this knowledge of myself that I, I needed to be who I was and be seen and be loud and proud. And before I had any vocabulary for that, uh, that's what theater was. I I do see theater as a vehicle for that because I've done theater since I was young and I watched, slowly watched like my friends come out and change, change their um, gender expression throughout their lives. And I felt the same way about them as like they didn't have that language until they were able to kind of like put it put it into words I guess well yeah and have the have whatever it is that theater gives you that that courage that confidence that theater doing theater as a young person gives you to speak truth and stand firm and you know do and do that that's that's actually sort of uh, uh, an acting trick right? it's true <laughs> I mean one of the one of the most beautiful things to me about theater is that um when I study theater, and this is something you touch on in both your TED Talk and in your one-man shows, um, where gender, to a certain degree, is performative. We exactly. we go out there and we're taught, okay, you behave this way if you're a girl, you behave this way if you're a guy. And it's interesting to me because theater people, they inherently in themselves don't necessarily believe that they have to behave one way or another but then when they go out and perform you're taught okay well if this character has this gender expression you have to behave this way or sit this way i can remember i did I did the Laramie Project in college, mm-hmm. and we actually got this chart that was like, okay, if your character's more masculine, you sit closer to like this end of the chart, and then if your character's more feminine, you sit closer to this end of the chart. And it was so wild to me because I'm like, here I am, like setting a chart where I'm like, okay, heavier steps is more masculine, you know, and right. it's so it's so fascinating because these things have been ingrained in us as young people. And I think that's what's really great to me about theater is it kind of teaches you that 
you know, blue and pink weren't always associated with boys and girls. These are these are just made up things that our culture has assigned to us. Exactly. Um, when I wrote my first show, um, which is called Underground Transit, I wrote it in college, and it was in this kind of moment where a couple different things were happening. I was majoring in theater, and I was getting straight A's. Teachers were saying to me, you know, like, you're really good. You could actually do this for a career, which not Teachers don't say that. Like any no, good acting don't. teacher, right, is going to say, if you can do anything else, do that. Because being an actor this is, is hard. the worst. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, they're trying to save you from something. But um, So my teacher was saying, great. But then I wasn't getting cast. Uh, and we had a professional. I went to Emory University in Atlanta. And we had a professional company that was in residence at the at the college. And so they did all these shows. And I wasn't getting cast in anything. And finally, a mentor sat me down and said, OK, here's the deal. You don't look like a girl and you don't look like a boy. Um, so we can't cast you as a girl or a boy. And there aren't any roles for that. But, you know, you don't have to sit around and wait for somebody to write a role for you. You could just write your own. So that's happening in one corner. I'm also a women's studies minor, right? And I'm starting to learn about how about the performance of gender, the way that we talk about it in queer theory, right? And um, talking about, you know, even feminism. We go back to, um, to Beauvoir. A woman is not born. She is made, Right. And understanding that society constructs how we do exactly what you said, how we do masculinity or femininity. Right. So I've got that happening. And suddenly I finally get the word. I finally meet somebody who is transgender like I am. I was aware that there were transgender women, but I wasn't aware that there were transgender men because men tend to sort of blend in and become invisible. And um, and nobody talks about it. Anyway, I right? totally agree with that. <laughs> right? I totally agree with that. So so there I was. I finally met somebody who was trans, and all these things coalesced in this one moment. And so I wrote a theater show about it, a one person show, so that I could star in it because I hadn't gotten any leading roles in my in my college. And um, and to their credit, Emory um, Theater Studies program produced my show. That's amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't too much. It's a one-man show, so what are you going to do? Right. And in that one-man show, what I did was I had written a bunch of kind of spoken word poetry. Spoken word was, like, really hitting in that time. And I had written probably six long-form spoken word poems about my experience of gender and my understanding that I was transgender and also my um, reticence. Because, like I said, I was a feminist. I am a feminist. And I was a women's studies minor. And I was like, do I become a man? Like do I want to be a white man? Uh, yeah, <laughs> like this yeah. is really hard yes. to deal with right now. Yeah. Right, right? Um, so also my reticence to, to transition at the time. And so it was kind of this thing about gender fluidity. And what I did was I, I had this script of, of kind of spoken word poetry broken up by uh, rock music. That's cool. And during those rock music breaks, I would change costumes. And as you watch, and you watch this progression from a very feminine girl to, a, to me in a suit. And then finally, the last kind of the coda of the piece is me in this ridiculous outfit that I found. And I was like, that has to go on my show. Right? <laughs> it was like board shorts and a matching visor in this kind of bright mustard yellow. You know that car that's like really bright, yes. now, like that color yellow, you know? And, um, you know, and, and it's funny because you watch me go through this and people said it, they were like, you really became the gender of whatever character you were playing. And then at the very end, you were just yourself. You know, and that was exactly the point of making that show. So when you, so you did this show and then you did two others, what kind of led you into doing two other shows? Well, so what happened was Emery produced 
um, underground transit, and it got produced a couple more times around Atlanta, where I was living, in the following year. And um, at some point, after, like somebody saw that that production that Emery did, and they were a college student at another college in upstate New York. Or no, it was Bar- uh, it was Bennington College in Vermont. And so she called me and said, "Hey, on your spring break, do you want to come?" perform at my college and I said sure and then she told some friends at Bard College and they said yeah I haven't come while he's here and a couple other colleges so before I graduated from college I had a tour that's so put cool together. and also kind of on the side my college uh, internship was at Damon Records which is um, the Indigo Girls uh, Amy Ray has has this record company and I was interning for them and I learned how to put together a tour so I just kind of kept doing it and I, I learned how to do it and I got some you know uh, bitch magazine wrote me up um, you know feminist magazine right That's like so wrote, cool. wrote up my show and um, then a lot of other people started calling it was mostly colleges at the time but then some theaters started calling and I started doing like workshops for college kids like like I taught at Yale School of Drama like when I was 27 you know what I mean like just you know like a workshop but that's a big deal but that is a big deal yeah that's a really big deal and um just you know and Kristen I like guest lecture for Kristen Linklater's class (laughs) you know like you're like like, surreal this is so surreal I I think that was at Vassar um and so it was just like it it was it, it was just something that very organically happened and I did that for a few years with underground transit and I also had this other story that I needed to tell And um, I'm from the South. I've grown up in a lot of places, but mostly in the South. And when I went to high school, I went to a private school in Charlotte, North Carolina, and most of the girls were debutantes. And so I hung out with a lot of debutantes. And um, I kind of learned that culture, and I had these three experiences that really happened in my real life. I, I was going to these debutante balls, which they the girls call coming out. You're, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm making my coming out. It's yes. so fun. You can't make that up, right? Right. Like, um, so I was going to these coming out parties and just happened to be coming out myself in different ways. Um, the first time I was coming out as a lesbian because I didn't know that I could be trans. I didn't know that that was a thing. Um, then I came out as a radical feminist when I was in college. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, by the third time, I was uh, a trans man. I was, you know, I was identifying as transgender. And there were just these stories that happened with each thing that you can't make up, you know, <laughs> um, that need to be told. And I found myself, I was sort of at bars with people. Tell, like they'd be my like go-to little bit stories that I would tell people. And they would laugh and laugh and say, like, you got to tell that story. you got to tell that story. So uh, I did what Peggy Shaw told me to do. Peggy Shaw, amazing one-person show person. Still, she's in her early 70s, I think, um, still doing one-person shows. Like, amazing, amazing, seminal uh, solo show person, um, performance artist. She said, when I need to, when I'm going to do a new show, I just book a venue. And that's my deadline. That's awesome. <laughs> so I, I, I applied to the Chicago Single File Festival, which sadly no longer exists, but it was a great festival for solo performers. And um, I said, I'm going to do this show for you. And they accepted it. And I did it. And it was it was like the hardest thing in the world. But I, I pulled it off. And people loved it. Like, it, it's a pure comedy. You know, people think that transgender work has to be sad or hard or, or something. And there's enough drama in it 
to like there's a little bit about my parents accepting me and a little bit about like my girlfriend never being accepted anywhere and some other things like that but overall it's a very funny piece and it just got sucked up and people wanted to do it and then I had those things under my belt and I I gate crashed a um the National Performance Network is something that any theater artist in the sound of my voice should look up. The National Performance Network. They're amazing. They're a network of um, 60 to 70 theater venues around the country. They do work that's political. They do work that is um, identity-based. If you're African-American, Asian, LGBT, all of the different identities, they're like super supportive of all these works. And they have a thing called a creation fund grant. I knew an NPN theater. I knew, um, and and that theater, one of the people at that theater said, "You got to come to this conference, their their annual meeting." And I was like, "Okay." So I just like booked a hotel room and went. And I got there, and the woman was like, uh, "This is an invitation only." And I was like, "Oh, but I'm here." And <laughs> and uh, and she had seen Underground Transit. Oh. Uh, she had seen me at a at a thing called Alternate Roots, which is another political theater organization and she said you know what but I saw your work so why don't you just go ahead and go in that's cool totally like the gatekeepers of the world letting you know it's like that's great and I got stuck in an elevator with uh, an arts presenter and so we were stuck in the elevator and we were chatting and uh, her name is Pat Graney and um, finally she was like who are you and what do you do you know and so I gave her my little elevator speech literally (laughs) (laughs) Um, and she said, are you coming to the LGBT caucus? And I said, yeah, yeah, which was all of the LGBT presenters in the network. She's like, let's go. As soon as we get out of here, let's go. <laughs> okay. So I, we get there, and she goes in, and she's leading the LGBT caucus. Wow. And she says, um, Scott has some really interesting things to say. Uh, Scott, I think you need to tell people about transgender representation in theater. And at the time, we're talking 2005, there wasn't. No, there really wasn't. At all. There really wasn't. So that's what I told them. And I got a bunch of people who were interested in my work. And I got three theaters that were interested in commissioning it. And it became the first transgender theater piece to be commissioned by the National Performance Network. That's amazing. And it just kind of kept going from there. You know what's interesting is um, in your... You you can ca- you can find these um, clips of them on YouTube. I just want to direct right. our viewers to that. And then um, in your piece, Debutante Balls, um, you compare you compare gender to class in such a way that you like you said before that it's funny. It's like anybody if there's a discomfort with the subject matter, you've blown it away for them by making them feel comfortable by allowing them to laugh. Exactly. Um, and I, I think that's what really good theater does is like when you come in and you're like, oh, I'm not sure. And then you're like, okay, now I'm, I'm all on board with this because we've, we've crossed that barrier. We've said there's, this is like the elephant in the room and I'm showing it to you. Um, so you say when you can't tell somebody's gender identity, just like you can't tell their class status, it's never polite to ask, right? which to me was the funniest thing. <laughs> so and true I, though, right? Yeah, so it's true. so true. It's so true. So, um, tell me about your writing process. Like was, you did say that um, a lot of this came from natural conversations that you had at bars, but was was it hard to translate that into a theater production? Well, that show sort of fell together pretty well, but that that 
kind of kernel about the class thing is a really good point because I so I premiered that show in 2004 and it took me until 2006 to get that class piece that whole like it's like 10 minutes of the show right where I'm where I'm like talking about you know being middle class and how that's like just like being transgender because everybody's <laughs> so panicked about being middle class all the yeah. time right um and uh it, I what happened was I was doing the show and I would get to this place where eventually the that little moment went the class moment went and I would go up on my lines I, it's like I knew there was something I needed to say there that I wasn't saying mm-hmm. And I would, and I would totally like lose my train of thought because my brain would go off and be like, no, no, you got to think about this. Well, maybe this goes here, you know. And and finally, I just sort of, I had my aha moment and said like, oh, I've talked about gender, I've talked about race, I've, t- you know, I need to talk about class. Duh, like that's and and class in the debutante world, right? Because you know, my family, at the time that I was going to the debutante balls, we had money. We didn't have money until that point. And we didn't have money after that point. But, you know, I could still go back into that world and nobody would ask me, like, how much money does your daddy make? You know what I mean? Like, nobody ever asks you that, right? So it's a different form of passing. It's like, it you know, we have people in the LGBTQ community who are passing in certain respects. And then you have people in class relationships and and also in race relationships who try to pass. And it's so it's so fascinating because um, to me, it's like you you have all these people trying to pass. And it's like you said, actually, you did you do the you did this um, BuzzFeed thing that I saw as well about masculinity. About masculinity mm-hmm. And you you basically say, just be you, right. you know, just be you, which I think is the best advice in the end. It is. And what I found out is that people will project whatever they want to project on you. Right. Um, So it doesn't matter if you're struggling. I mean, the thing about passing, right, and trying to pass is that it means that there's failure on the other side of it. Right. Right. If you don't pass, then you fail. So, you know, if if I go out into the world and people perceive me as a guy, if I pass as a guy, right, like – cool that makes my life easier because then that means I'm a white guy right and then if I dress up real nice then I pass as somebody who has money mm-hmm. you know and in LA everybody thinks everybody has money right, like, right? <laughs> so like, true right you, we don't know right <laughs> like you could be my next producer you know um and people you notice that people treat you you notice in the way that people treat you all the ways that you pass or don't pass mm-hmm if people treat you poorly, it's because you're not you're, you're not passing in some way. Right. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. But back to your question about, um, you know, my process. Yeah, I I had these sort of three stories, big stories to tell that that all hooked onto the same kind of spine of the debutante ball narrative. And then I just kind of found I I knew I wanted to talk about sexuality, gender, and race at the time. And then I found the class piece, right? So it was like, I need to talk about these things. So I kind of stitched in kind of transitions and ways of, I, I tried to think like, how can I make these things interesting? How can I make it like political, but not didactic, right? So the, the way that I talk about race is um, everybody, when they come into the theater, gets a small uh, Dixie cup, right? Dixie, hello, right? <laughs> right? You get a little tiny Dixie cup, right? And everybody's like, what's this for? Because it looks like, like a cup that you pee in at the right. doctor's office, you know? And so they get this little cup. 
and I, and then I come out on stage and I've got a big pitcher of sweet tea and I because sweet tea the south right mm-hmm. so I'm walking around and I'm talking to them about sweet tea and the importance of sweet like literally in Georgia restaurants can be fined for not serving sweet tea it's like I, a law. I just you know what's so funny <laughs> is this is just a sidebar but um one of my cousins from Georgia just visited me recently and we went to have lunch in Beverly Hills and they were like are they gonna have sweet tea here I was like I, nope. I don't think they know what that <laughs> like, is. I was like, they're just going to assume that you're going to put sugar in some tea. I mean. Yeah, which is not the way. That is not sweet tea. Yeah, exactly. And I talk about all of that, right? Mm-hmm. And then I say, listen, um, so so sweet tea is kind of the, the – and when you ask for sweet tea in restaurants, when you ask for iced tea in Georgia, you get sweet tea. Mm-hmm. You have to say, I want unsweet tea. And then they put like a spoon and a lemon in it to make sure everybody knows that you're not having sweet tea, right? And um, and so I said like sweet tea is is like served without question, just like my whiteness, right? And so I figured I could, I can't change anything about my whiteness. That's, it's the backdrop of my story and there's nothing I can do about it, but I wanted to, to like serve it to you sweet, (laughs) right? And that's my like white privilege, like owning it and saying like, let's all be aware of this. And now, now we have to go into the rest of the story, right? Are you with me? I love that. Well, what would you, what kind of advice would you have to our listeners if we have somebody in the audience who maybe wants to do their own production? What sort of advice would you have for them? Well, if you want to do it, that means you have a story to tell. And everybody has a story to tell. I I don't believe for a second that anybody hearing me doesn't have a story to tell. So what you have to do is find that story. Right. And, and, And actually, I'm a real proponent of the idea that every person's story can actually change the world. Um, and why I say that is because you don't, you, you could be, you could think of yourself, you could perceive yourself as the most boring person in the world, right? And you could write a show about that. And 10 people in that audience would be like, I thought I was the most boring person in the world. And I was going to kill myself because I thought I was so boring. Literally, I mean, that's, I'm not exaggerating. Like, that's the power of story. And unfortunately, now we have these sort of sound bites and, you know, we we talk to each other online. We don't tell each other our stories. But when you do, you change things in people. You open people's hearts. You access their empathy. And if we were doing that, we wouldn't have the issues we have today, honestly. One of the most, just bridging off of that, one of the most fascinating things to me about theater and why I think theater is the perfect medium for you to choose to do these one-man shows because they're so personal. Right. Um, there's nothing, the the first time, there's nothing quite like live theater, which is cheesy and, you know, whatever, but it's true. Um, the first time I saw Hedwig, I was in a small theater that was a dinner theater in Baltimore. Wow. And I was in a, like a table seat, like right in front of Hedwig. And I'm like, this is the way to see Hedwig. I almost don't want to see it's coming to the Pantages. And I'm like, I almost don't want to see it there. It's so impersonal. And I've seen it from like a from like a cafe position, which if you think of it, it is kind of like a cabaret show anyway. So um, to me, there's something very unique in in that that person can look you in the eye and pass a message to you that you're not going to get from another medium. That's exactly what it is. You know, and when you watch someone, for instance, with underground transit, you know, I would I would transition in front of people's eyes over and over and over again and they would go on that journey of transition with me so there was not a single person who could leave that space saying that they didn't intimately understand a a transgender person's story and struggles and issues now I'm only one transgender person but a lot of that 
is really similar. Right, <laughs> right. right. Um, and, and I know that that changed things, you know, like the, it, it's, and yeah, it's, it's just, we, when we are behind a screen of any sort, we have the choice of whether or not we're going to, we have the distance, right? Yeah. When we're in the room with somebody, you're, you're like atoms are mixing up. I mean, think about it on like a quantum physics level, right? Like, like we're, you know, we're not actually separate in this room right now. Yeah. Our atoms are all mixed up. We're in the only people stuff. in this room right, right. now. It's crazy. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but we're all mixed up in each other. Right. And so that's working on you in a, in a, on a level, like we're working on each other on a level right now. And so that's why I'm such a proponent of theater, even if it's very hard to do, but the one person show, you know, just economically, right. The one person show medium is a way that artists can take control of your acting life you don't have to get cast in it it's your own show (laughs) right um you can learn some of the business of theater and learn how to approach venues and get produced and or produce yourself which is the way to then know how to approach venues and get produced because you know how to be professional right um and you can go on tour with those things you can there's like so many things you can do you can perform i mean depending on the setup of your show i have performed in a living room and I have performed at the Carnival Center in Miami, you know, with all the bells and whistles, right? So um, you can really do anything with a one-person show. And I think every actor really needs to go through the process of creating and performing one because it gets you so deeply in touch with all of your own emotions, how you act, right? And once you know how you act, then you can act anything. That's true. You know, um, I had a I had a theater professor who said he was casting Richard III and this guy came in and he kind of walked with a limp on one side and then he straightened up and then made himself a hunchback on the other side. And he's like, I, I was just like flabbergasted right. because you're thinking you don't know your body enough to know you already are walking with a limp on this one side of your body. Why wouldn't you just use that? <laughs> right. We so, get in our minds too yeah. much. Yeah, it's a, it's a good, you know, doing one-man shows is a great way to use actors we're too mental all the time right in so many ways but we're you know but we overthink Mm -hmm. so much and so it's a great place to put all of your overthinking because a lot of us we're either you know we can be good writers and and we can be good speakers we're we're usually at least one of of the two if not both Mm -hmm. right and so it's a really great place to put all that brain chatter and all of that control freakness right (laughs) into creating what is essentially a theatrical poetry like a one-person show is a theatrical poem if you think about it right and so you can just take all of that and put it in there and then act it I, I just don't think that there's that there's much of a better way to do it, you know. I, I mean, I love that description, and also you did um, you did a French festival as well. Now, do you speak French? Un peu. <laughs> <laughs> did you have to speak French for this show? I did. Oh, you did. I did. So what happened was, the longer story of it is, um, I got a Princess Grace Foundation fellowship, um, and. It gave me a salary for a year to work at a theater in Atlanta called Seven Stages. And but they didn't like have anything for me to do. So they're like, uh, right. So um, 
they had a bunch of international companies coming in that season and they asked me to be the liaison so i would pick them up from the airport and take them everywhere and show them around and all the things right and i got this french company came in um this director eric vignet and and his folks came in and they put on a show and i spoke like pretty good french um and he was just like, but I was the only person who spoke French. So he was so happy, Aww. you know, to like have someone to talk to. And he didn't speak any, you know, really much English, you mm-hmm. know. And um, so we got to know each other. He invited my show to the National Theater of France in Lorient. And the show was like a runaway success. People like my dressing room was rushed by teenagers. It was I was like a rock star. It was so <laughs> strange. Crazy. It That's was great. Wonderful. It was totally great. I was full nudity naked on the 11 o'clock news. I was like, what? It's France. They don't care. <laughs> right. um, and so five years later, after that, he invited me to come perform in a play that he was putting on. And he was like, oh, but you will have to come for a year. We are going to, you know, blah, blah. So I, like, <laughs> I went and, but I had, I had turned 30 and the, uh, the brain really changes and it really does. I thought that was a joke. When I was in France five years earlier, my French like took off. It just advanced. I was like almost fluent. I was like so good. You know, it was crazy. And then I got there and and I couldn't put two words together. It was like the hardest thing. And so I ended up learning my script phonetically. Mm. I had people record what it's supposed to sound like. Mm-hmm. And without even like really knowing what it meant, like what I was saying, I just sort of learned it that way and then over the time it took between when we started rehearsing in Avignon which was the festival and then the rest of our tour for the rest of that year I started to understand what it meant but I I felt like such a fraud talk about like imposter syndrome no but that's I mean uh Andre the Giant that's how he learned his script phonetically yeah he had to the same way you're experiencing which is like the reverse since he's French and or he was French um but yeah, that's how he learned his Princess Bride script. He listened to it phonetically. Yeah, it was wild. It was just this really. Uh... So I, I did my one man show in French. It was wild, and then when I got there again, I couldn't do it again in French. It was it was so strange. But... Hey, I, I mean, I could see where that's hard. Um... Don't wait to learn a language. <laughs> learn it now. It's so true. <laughs> it's so true. It's so much easier when you're younger. Um, so we have a current election coming up. <laughs> And I I would be remiss if I didn't talk about this because I think, you know, we're talking about political theater Absolutely. and we're talking about when you're in the room with someone, it's hard to um, it's hard to escape that person's personhood. Like if you're standing in a room with someone, I, I've had friends who um, I had a friend that I worked with who another friend that we worked with he's gay and the other person is straight and they went um this friend went to photograph his uh gay volleyball league and he was like i was so adamantly anti-gay until i went to this volleyball Mm -hmm. um thing and took all these photos and realized like these are real people (laughs) you know it sounds so silly it sounds so silly but it's like at the same time when you're when you're in this room when you're in the room with someone when you're interacting with someone you start to understand how they think and how they feel and that they have feelings just like you do and um it's so fascinating to me because in this election there seems to be like this hardwired forgetting that like we have people in this country who were alienating um yeah and 
I guess to the the first thing I want to speak about is the South Carolina bathroom law, which we um, you touched on in your interview with James. But I think one of my not only is it a transphobic law, but it's a sexist law. Like, you're not saying that your main concern is women in the restroom. Your main concern is not the men's restroom. And so that's always, like, bugged me, too, because I'm like, I don't go into the bathroom afraid. Like, why are you making this assumption that women are going into the bathroom like, It's patriarchal. It's, It's saying, like, we need to protect our women. But honestly, like, it's not even about that. Like, that law had buried underneath it a provision to stop cities in North Carolina from having to uh, adopt the $10 an hour uh, federal minimum wage. Like the whole thing has just been a total ruse for a Republican uh, agenda, you know, that has everything to do with making life hard for the middle class and poor people and nothing to do you know and this just they just took the ick factor they're like let's we'll just throw the word transgender at it since that's like real big right now and you know and people will go ew ick and we'll get the vote and that's exactly what they did right so yeah it's you're right it's sexist it's patriarchal it's transphobic and it's like that's just the beginning (laughs) of that right it just it it fascinates me too because uh, at my my other job we have a lock on the women's bathroom door and not a lock on the men's bathroom door, and I when we when they first installed the lock I was like well where's the one for the guys room and they're like oh well they don't need one I was like oh they right. don't right. okay okay men don't get assaulted ever right and then men's the other, rape isn't real the other thing that really bothered me was I was like the door to this restroom is like two inches from reception and like five feet from finance so you're basically telling me everybody I work with if they hear me scream they're right. just gonna turn <laughs> gonna the other way which I have I have like a, a strong belief in my coworkers to believe that they're actually not that mean so i was like i I just don't get it you really think that no one would like come help out if they even if they saw someone they didn't know in the building because they have to pass by reception to get to this place the fact about this bathroom thing people say well you know all these people there's been a surge of people who are men going into women's restrooms now those people yes that is happening those people are not sexual predators and those people are not transgender can I say the A word here? Yeah. Those people are assholes. Yes. They are assholes who are trying to prove some kind of point. Point, yeah. But that's what's happening. Now, in 17 school districts where they have gender identity bathrooms, so, like, you are you can go to the bathroom of your gender identity and not of your birth sex, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, meaning, like, I can go to the men's room even though I was born female, right? Zero exactly zero like couldn't draw a harder zero right that's how many cases that they have had any trouble with like they haven't had any assaults like nothing's ever happened and politifact which is a really um conservative but by bipartisan but still very conservative Mm -hmm. um news fact organization found that there have been no cases of men using the transgender excuse as a cover for assaulting women And let us not forget, men assaulting women in women's bathrooms has always, since the beginning of time in every state forever, been illegal. Right. Okay. Right. So, and and it's, the the phrase that we like to put on it is, it's a a solution without a problem. Yeah. 
you know. And it's it's simply there to divide people. It's there to put make transgender people the butt of the joke again. Um, and it's it's utilizing sort of the basest instincts of our population. Now that said, it's a bunch of white male Christian crybabies having their last temper tantrum, and I'm not worried. <laughs> Well, it's like, I feel like at this point, you know, we had we had the first transgender speaker at the DNC recently. Um, They're holding on to that last vestige of, okay, well, we have this thing that we can still like be angry about. Um, Exactly. Because it's like, if you, you know, you had uh, Donald Trump at at his in his speech mention um the the shooting in Orlando. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody was supportive. And you're like, well, you have to be supportive because at this point you look like a friggin' idiot if you're not, mm-hmm. you know, and we just want it that way across the board. It's like you look dumb at this point if you're not if you're not on board with like rationality. Mm-hmm. Well, they, I mean, they would just look you, you can't take the biggest gun massacre in American history and not have sympathy for that. And the thing is, like, talk about alienating people. You know, what's very hard for me and, and I work very hard at this. I sacrifice a lot. I work very hard. Um, is to remember that, like, okay, these are real people, and they're coming from a background like they've been taught this way. You have to be carefully taught, right? They've been taught this way, and they're human beings just like I am. And so, and look, in that moment, they access their empathy. So they have empathy, right? Okay, this is something I can work with, right? This is something that we can all, we can educate people and people don't get educated by being didactic, by being like, I get mad and I say things, which is my right. But when I'm in the room educating people, I let them be exactly where they are. I say, okay, but have you considered the fact that 17 school districts have had zero problems? That PolitiFact on Fox News said this, right? Have you, did you know that? No, I didn't think you did. But now that you know that, can we both agree that perhaps this is a solution without a problem? Right. You know, and having that kind of calm dialogue, right, um, is, you know, and plus telling your story, right, is something that can really kind of help people do this. Now, we think about think about the movable middle, right, because that's who who we're really going for in this election cycle. You've got the Bernie bros on one side, right? All the entitlement, none of the knowledge. And you've got, um, I mean, as much as the Trump followers. It's bonkers, but like sort of about different things, right? Um, You're not going to be able to talk to them. They're not going to listen to you anyway. They're too busy mansplaining and whitesplaining, right? So you go to the middle, right? And here you have everybody else who's like, I don't know what to do. This is all crazy. And it's, and Facebook isn't fun anymore. And, you know, yeah, Facebook I, is you not know, fun anymore. I deal with this, right? These are the folks whom stories really approach. So anyone within the sound of my voice, if you're LGBTQ, if you're Muslim, if you're uh, any of the things that the Voldemort campaign is, um, <laughs> is, uh, is aggressing upon, go on Facebook and write a very short, not too long, don't read, right? But like a, a, a pretty short story about something that has happened to you with your identity. This could be your first one-man show. It's on social media, right? Your first one-person show I on love this. Media. I love this idea. Tell a story about something that happened. What I did, I told a story about how before I knew I was transgender, but I was very masculine, uh, a lady who looked like my mom, like 50s white lady, beat me up in a bathroom. First, she thought I was a boy, so she started hitting me with, my, with her purse. 
Then when I pulled up my shirt to show her my bra to prove to her that I was a girl, she started screaming dyke at me and continued oh hitting God, me. Oh, God, And I was in the movie theater with my parents. I went in there. I was bleeding. I went back into the thing. My mom said, what happened to you? And I told her I walked into a door because I was so ashamed that who I was and how I presented in the world had that happen to me that I acted like an abused person, right? I mean, I was an abused person, but I acted like it, right? Because I didn't want... I didn't even want to give my mom like the opportunity to say, well, sweetheart, if you would just dress a little more feminine, right? So I wrote that on Facebook. It, you know, you only hit, had to hit the more button once to read it, right? It got, I can't tell you how many likes it got. It's still getting likes. I got interviewed, like a, the Daily Beast called me about it. Like I've been getting press things about it because it's a story about the problem and about what happens when you make rules like that, Right. And it's personal. You you made it personal. And I, I will say that if you do a story like that and you would like me to retweet it, I will. Um, I'm at 123JackieB, um, and I'm more than happy to retweet anyone's story. I'll retweet story. it, too, at Turner Schofield. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Make it your first your first one-man show. <laughs> your first one-man show on social media. I like that. One-person show on social media. I That's like that. <laughs> Good job. Hey, all right. Quick thinking. Um I guess, but don't to, read the comments. <laughs> trust me, trust me. Like any person in any sort of uh, public capacity, you have been shat on at some point. I've been shat on. I'm sure you've been shat on. It's just like, do no, you like how you use the phrase it's kind of a game? On? You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like run between the shit drops. <laughs> right. <You know>? Like, <laughs> and sometimes it surprises you because, like, sometimes you're attacked by people. You're like, whoa. Did not see that coming. That was the, like, out yeah. of left field shit on. Yeah. You know, and it's... The friendly fire is the hardest. Yeah, yeah. it is the hardest. It is the hardest. Um, and it, I, you just have to, like, ignore it and bounce back because it happens to all of us. Right. It happens to all of us. You do. Um, I have to move it to, like, a lighter note before we close up. If if you could play, like, any role in theater, what role would you play? Mm. Like, a dream oh, role. Oh, my goodness. A dream role. I have like six different things going through my mind right That's now. That's okay. You can list like all of them. Okay, if you I'll list want. all of them. <laughs> uh, Hedwig, Puck, uh, anybody in a Sam Shepard play that I could play. Um, <laughs> anybody. Um, uh, I I play basically any character in Doubt. Um, I'd play. Oh, I know. I know. Like in an hour, I'm gonna be like that one. What am I <laughs> yeah. doing? Right. Um, Romeo. God too old but i would um. no i i seen i i saw an rsc production with a, a, a romeo is definitely older than you by mm. 10 years so it's possible but you know i think honestly if i could play any role i would play a role that hasn't that i can't even imagine yet but a role that utilizes everything about my skill set so that I love everything that I'm doing when I walk out on there and I and I feel really good about it, that doesn't have anything to do with being transgender or even being uh, like a person. You know what I mean? Like that, that, that doesn't have anything to do with my personal story. Uh, at this point, I would love to just act in any role that allows me to do what I've only ever wanted to do in the first place, which is act. I did all this one-person show stuff, which was amazing because I've gotten to tour the world and I've gotten all these awards and I, you know, I've been really successful with the one-person show thing, but I only did it because no one would cast me because I was trans. Yes. So I think the world has moved. I know the world has moved uh, away from that. 
And I'm really looking forward to the moment when somebody says, hey, man, why don't you come play this role? And, you know, that role is really fun. I think there um, today, as opposed to like you were talking about 10 years ago when you when you started this journey, um, I do think today that people are thinking outside the box as far as casting. And it's um, it's interesting to me because theater, I, I'm like, you're, you're theater. You're supposed to think outside the box. Right. But theater is made by people. That's true. Right. <laughs> and if you think, I mean, think about what people knew back when I started about transgender stuff. Right. Like they I think of everything they don't know now and what they didn't know 10 years ago was astounding. So it gives me great faith in humanity. It is a little difficult to be ahead of the curve all the time. Yeah. You kind of just want to be in the flow, right. you know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Scott. Thank you for having me. Um, where can the people find you on Twitter? You can find me on all the things, all the media, all the media, Scott Turner Schofield. Check it out. Um, you can find me on all platforms, 123JackieB, except for Snapchat is JackieB123. Thank you so much for listening to us here on Broadway Breakdown. And next week, we're discussing Lame is the Movie. My dad loved that. <laughs> From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.